Hey, what's going on? Ah, those bums won their court case, so they're marching today. What bums? The fucking Nazi party. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. There's one thing I've learned over a lifetime of watching movies is that Hollywood loves Nazis. Okay, well, maybe not, but they sure do love to make movies about them. For over 80 years, those swastika-sporting, jackboot-wearing, goose-stepping assholes have been the antagonists of countless dramas, thrillers, and action films, many of which have become cinematic classics showered with awards and accolades. On today's episode of Slums of Film History, we decided to take a look at a different cinematic take on the Third Reich. In this episode, we will discuss the films that dare to satirize, poke fun, and even straight-up exploit the most notorious group of bastards to ever appear on the silver screen. Join us today as we have fun with Nazis. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in play company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from black exploitation to ethnically inclusive street gangs to backwater hick rapists. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slate. Hi, Tom. How you doing? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Good. I'm excited about this episode. I am too. Yeah. Did you have anything you wanted to say before we get started? Well, I did want to kind of point out, people constantly ask me, uh, and I'm sure you too, about the movie The Room and oh, yeah. what we think about the movie The Room. Mm-hmm. And here's where we admit the fact that neither of us had seen The Room. It's true. Up until... Up until when I came up to New York for the film festival, we took a night and saw a midnight showing of The Room. Uh-huh. And we were actually really surprised because when we got to the midnight showing of The Room, first off, it was way more expensive than a midnight uh, showing of The Room should have been. Sure. But it was because Tommy Wiseau was there. And he introduced the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he came out, he took questions, which was kind of a, it wasn't a a civilized fireside chat. It was more like people yelled out questions and he yelled out insulting answers. Right. It was crazy drunk people yelling out weird questions and wanting things from him like hugs and kisses and he self-fied in kind and, yeah. yeah and we had so much fun it was, it was, it was really one great. Of the most we were two of the drunk people there but yes. uh it was, it was great the movie was fantastic it was and the audience participation was a packed audience there was not a, a spare seat in the house no. yeah it was fully uh, packed. and we just had a great time it was really a fun experience it, yeah it was one of the most fun experiences i've had at a movie that i can remember yeah so if you get a chance to go see it you saw it again I saw it again because they show it here in D.C. too. It wasn't as packed, but the audience was just as into it. Yeah. And it was still a good time. It's great. I, I had so much fun. I kind of feel like I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to do this. It's too late. I want to go to bed. Yeah, I kind of was too. usually get drunk and then fall asleep in movies.
movies. And right. this was like, I was like, fuck the fuck. Yeah, this is great. It was a great time. So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, well, that's too bad, but we're going to tell you. The Room is probably considered one of the worst movies ever made. There's a whole long history of it. It came terrible. out and it's really terrible, but it's watchably terrible and is wonderfully terrible. It's got a weird life of its own. I can't even explain it. It's just, it's yeah, magnificently it's, awful. It's got a following too. And so it's kind of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show of, you know, of our Bad generation yeah. of where people throw spoons and there's props and there's retorts and stuff yeah. like that. It's just super fun. If you get a chance to see it, you should. And not to mistake it for the movie Room that came out last year. Which is that, not funny in any way. In any way. This one is called The Room and it came out in 2003 and it is hilariously bad. Yeah. So definitely worth seeing. Well, both movies are worth seeing for different reasons. But yeah, yeah The Room had a great time. It's so. awesome. All right. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on. This one is an interesting one when I was researching it because initially this was just going to be about Nazis and it's all it is. But that would be like a 10 hour episode right. if I was just going to discuss Nazis. Mm-hmm. And that's not really our thing. Not really slums like it's got to there kind of has to be an angle around it. Right. Yeah. And I think I've found it because for well, first of all, there's so many Nazi movies that, that are coming out that deal with Nazis as bad guys. They're the perfect bad guys. Right. Yeah. Because nobody likes Nazis except other Nazis. Nazis. Everybody fucking hates Nazis, yeah, and yeah. I'm on board with that. I agree. Yeah. But what I found interesting about the whole cinematic portrayal of Nazis is the movies that dealt with more of satire, that made fun of the, the Third Reich, Hitler, and the Nazis, and sort of found dark humor with that. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of them. And there's a lot of exploitation, too, which we'll talk about, which is our bread and butter here. So, yeah. so let's get started. Great. And so the way I'm going to start this episode is I'm going to begin with a little bit of a history lesson. Okay, good. Because, you know, I know nothing about Nazis, wars, really anything. I know, you really don't. I think you think the Nazis invaded Vietnam and yep, and the Taliban. So I'll, I'll break it down for you. Right? Wait, that's not true? Yeah. Oh, well, it's, it's half true. Okay, great. We'll go into it. All right, so a very brief history lesson for Slate and for the listeners at home. Uh, this is like instant history. I'm going to go real quick. 1914, World War One starts, and at that same year, a former house painter and wannabe artist, Adolf Hitler, joins the German army. He does a pretty good job, earns an iron cross for saving a commander, blah, blah, blah. 1918, World War I ends, Germany's defeated, the nation is economically depressed, and politically unstable. 1919, Hitler, frustrated with Germany's defeat in the war, joins the German Workers' Party. Becomes the leader of that party in 1921. By then, it's renamed the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party, also known as the Nazi Party. All the while growing in popularity due to his speeches and the fact that he's a racist and anti-Semitic and that worked at that time for that audience. In 1921, Hitler and his followers stage a takeover of the government of Bavaria. It fails, he goes to jail, but gets out and he's more popular than ever. In 1929, the Great Depression hits Germany. The Nazi party exploits that shitty circumstance to gain political power. And in 1933, Hitler was appointed German Chancellor. And his Nazi government soon became into control of every aspect of German life. Also in 1933, Hitler opened the first concentration camp because he's a fucking piece of shit, as well as undoing the Treaty of Versailles, which was the treaty that guarded against Germany building up its army after World War I. He withdrew from the League of Nations that same year, and then in 1938, they invaded Czechoslovakia. In 1939, they invaded Poland. And then Great Britain declared war against Germany, and that's how the war started. Yeah. One thing I want to point out during that period, though, is that even while all this was going on, America really didn't have much to say about the Nazis in the 30s. I mean, some people knew that he was a threat or didn't agree with them or had an opinion, but we were still dealing with our own problems post-World War One, the Depression. So Hitler wasn't as notorious as he, of course, he would have come throughout right, history. Sure. He was just some dude, and I bring that up right now because it plays into some other stuff that happens during this period. All right, so moving on, there's another thing I want to bring up that a lot of people don't know, 
And that is, Hitler was a huge movie fan. Oh, really? Yeah. But of course, Hitler being Hitler, he also recognized that there was a persuasive power to film. Right, sure. And that it could be used as a powerful propaganda tool oh, for right. his cause. This is starting to make sense now. Right. Yeah. And so did the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. And so they set out to be a controlling force of German cinema and to use cinema as a propaganda tool f- to boost the Nazi party. So at this point, I want to talk about a, a popular film from 1930 called All Quiet on the Western Front. I know you've heard of this movie. I have. Uh, have you ever seen it? I don't think so. I actually haven't seen it either. I know it's uh, it's about a German soldier's extreme physical and mental stress during World War One, mm-hmm. like his detachment from civilian life. I guess it dealt with themes of PTSD back in World War One, and it won two Academy Awards and whatnot. But I bring this up because it was widely protested by the Nazi party when it was being shown in Germany. Oh, really? And during its brief run in German cinemas in the early 30s, Nazi brown shirts under Joseph Goebbels disrupted viewings by sending off stink bombs, throwing sneezing powder in the air, and releasing white mice in the theaters. Like, they were pranking people in the theaters. That's like the most, like, third grade, like, like pr- yeah, like, pranking. We're gonna do stink bombs. Yeah. Take that, it's all quiet on the western front. front. Yeah. We're a major dicks. political parties. <laughs> but then they eventually escalated that to attacking audience members especially those perceived to be Jewish, and forcing projectors to shut down. Caving in the Nazi pressure, the German government finally got rid of that showing. Because this mm-hmm. was before the Nazis had taken control of the German government. Sure, yeah. They were a major political player, but they weren't running everything in Germany, so they were still doing shit like that, and right. Germany was like, fuck it, we're going to have that. Things got even crazier when the Nazis did take power, and Goebbels had complete control over the German film industry, and he had say in what could and could not be in German movies. And also, a fucked up thing happened where the Nazis kicked out all Jewish members of Hollywood's film community that were in Germany that were doing business with the Germans. And, like, in the distribution offices and whatnot, like Fox Film, Paramount, MGM, they all moved their Jewish personnel out. Still did business with the Nazis, but from outside. Uh-huh. Uh, the only person who was like, fuck that, was the Warner Brothers. They were like, fuck you, Germany. And supposedly because in April 1933, the head of the studio's branch office in Berlin got beat up by Nazi brown shirts. He eventually died from that. So Jack Warner closed operations in Germany and said, I'm not doing business with you anymore. Go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. And that'll play into this later on. But just understand that yeah, Warner Brothers was the first one to flip the finger and say go you know right. to be like we're not having this yeah. yeah but as things went on the nazis however didn't just have influence in film in germany but they also had influence in what hollywood did back home as well a guy named george gisling was hitler's consul in los angeles actually had an office in la Ugh. in the 30s yeah. and had some say about what could and could not be in movies that were going to be shown in germany Now, supposedly some projects didn't even happen because of the fact that he said no. Apparently he had this much power. For example, a movie about the Lusitania was dropped from being produced. An anti-Hitler film called The Mad Dog of Europe was also canceled because supposedly of Nazi influence. Now, let me back up real quick and say this piece of the research, and I realize I'm history heavy, but it all plays in. Sure. Is that a big chunk of my research is from a book called The Collaboration, Hollywood's Pact with Hitler, that came out in 2013 by author Ben Erwand. I haven't read the whole book. I read some pieces. It's interesting, but there's also a lot of historians that say that it's not quite accurate. Mm-hmm. True, we'll this guy website, was in Hollywood, yeah. and he did have say in certain things that could go to Germany. But the argument against the book that it was the Nazis that had complete control, they're saying, actually, it wasn't really the Nazis preventing these types of movies being made. It was actually the Motion Picture Production Code, a.k.a the Hayes Code mm. that blocked these movies from uh-huh. being produced. Now, you and I have talked about the Hayes Code a lot. A million times, yeah. And it's a fascinating piece of history because it's censorship pure and simple, but at the same time, because that existed, some of the best movies in Hollywood were produced. Agreed. It's got that dual edge. 
language here. Yeah. But in regards to here, there was a stipulation in the Hayes Code that actually deals with international relations. And it says, in regards to international relations, avoid picturing in any unfavorable light another country's religion, history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry. So any movies that portrayed that mm-hmm. were usually blocked from the Hayes Code. Huh. So you couldn't really produce a movie like that. Yeah, It was more so that than this Nazi. But of course, at the time, Hollywood still wanted to have movies in Germany. It was a big film market. I think the equivalent would be like something like China today. You know, if China wanted something pulled out of a movie, they may consider it because they want to have that film market. That's the equivalent of Germany back in the 30s. Makes sense. Things ended up turning around in the 30s, though. Uh, one of the first things produced that began that change or that perpetrated that change was a newsreel documentary called The March of Time. I guess these were a series of documentaries yep. that came out in the 30s. This one that was produced was called Inside Nazi Germany. It came out in 1938. And it denounced Hitler's brand of totalitarianism, and people started to take notice. The reason this passed or was it, it was a short subject, and short films actually could get away with stuff that the feature-length films couldn't. Mm-hmm. And since it was a documentary, it sort of slipped in the cracks, and the Hayes Code really couldn't touch it. Sure. That's how all the nudist films always got through, because like they were documentaries. documentaries. So they, yeah. they slipped through. So same here. And then none other than Jack Warner ended up bringing the rest of Hollywood on board with a production called Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Mm-hmm. That came out in spring of 1939, and it sort of got everybody uh, on board. It, I don't know how well it did. I don't think it did all that great, but it was sort of the first shot over the bow, so to speak, of a narrative film that were criticizing Nazi Germany, and then a lot of movies followed afterward. Okay. Also, fun fact, what's interesting about this is this is also the first movie that actually showed images of Hitler. in a narrative film. Um, It didn't have any actors portraying Hitler because nobody wanted to portray Hitler at that time. Mm -hmm. No actors were like, they're like, fuck that. Even though actors portrayed the rest of his cabinet, like Joseph Goebbels and everyone else, nobody wanted to be Hitler. So they had to resort to that. They're like, fuck that guy. So I found that to be interesting. But that led into the first satire where people were actually making fun of Nazi Germany. And the first one that I could find was actually a Three Stooges short. And again, really? this is a short film. Remember I said that they, they're able to get short films past the Hayes Code right, because it wasn't feature narrative length, feature. Yeah. And this one was from 1940, and it was called You Nazi Spy. And the short is about a fictional country in Moronica, and these munitions manufacturers are trying to start a war so that people will buy their munitions. So they get the Stooges, who are like house painters, and they turn them into like dictators, and hilarity ensues or whatever. But yeah. they, they model Mo, who's like the one the that already kind of looks like Hitler. Hitler. Yeah, yeah, they put a mustache on him, and he was Hitler. Uh-huh. We've come here to offer you the greatest opportunity of your life. You mean you let us paper the living room? No, no, no. You're through with papering. My partners and I are going to make you dictator of Moronica. Dictator? What does a dictator do? A dictator? Why, he makes love to beautiful women, drinks champagne, enjoys life, and never works. He makes speeches to the people, promising them plenty, gives them nothing, then takes everything. That's a dictator. Hmm, a parasite. That's for me. Quiet. We'll take the job. What do we do? So that was the first major spoof of Hitler. Yeah. Fun fact, it was released nine months before the Charlie Chaplin film, The Great Dictator, which I'm about to talk about next. That began filming in September 1939. So You Nazi Spy was followed by a sequel called I'll Never Hail Again. Hail again. Hail, yeah. Yeah, and that was from 1941. Like I said, the next film was The Great Dictator from 1940. And it's a Charlie Chaplin film in which he wrote, directed, produced, and he even scored the movie. Having been the only Hollywood filmmaker to continue to make silent films well into the period of sound films, this was Charlie Chaplin's first true sound film. Yeah, yeah. Do you have this? I do, do, yeah. I own this. It's a Criterion movie. The Great Dictator is like such a classic movie. It was so 
controversial back then when it happened. Everyone told him not to do it. Yeah. He said, don't make this movie. It's going to kill your career, which already wasn't really doing that great. Right. And he just didn't listen. He was like, I've got this story. I've got this thing. I've got this idea. He did. He's such an auteur. He did all of these things himself from the scoring and everything. Right. And the amazing thing about the movie was even though nobody wanted any part of it, it came out. It was a huge hit. It revived his career. Yeah. It's considered to be a classic any way you slice it. It's just, it's a brilliant film. Yeah. It, it also came out at the right time. I mean, you know, it was right on the cusp of the U.S. entering the war, too. Right. People were learning about the terrible shit that was happening in Germany, and it fit the mindset when it yeah. came out, and everybody embraced it. All right, so moving on from that, again, that movie was a big, big success, but other full-length films didn't really satirize the Nazi regime during the 40s. But what you did see a rise of were cartoons that did that. Mm Mm-hmm. So the shorts did that. We talked about that. But cartoons, both Warner Brothers, like I said, Jack Warner, fuck the Nazis. He was right on board with making cartoons that made fun of the Nazis, featuring uh, the Merry Melody characters, i.e. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, those that group of cartoon characters. Yeah, sure. The first one that I could find was one, a Porky Pig short from 1939 called What Price Porky? Mm-hmm. And it's about Porky Pig mobilizing his chickens against a duck tater, played by Daffy Duck. You're making this up. I'm not making this up. Hey, Mr. Ducks, please don't steal my hen's corn. They'll get awful hungry. Now, you just bring back cops like nice duckies, and someday I'll have you all over for a duck dinner. All of these will be on the website. Anything wow. that I mention here, I'm going to put them on the site. Yeah. They're on YouTube. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. It's the straight up, like, making fun of Hitler. They're great, actually. They're I guess pretty that good. that makes sense. I haven't seen, like, a, you know, a Looney Tunes-style cartoon in probably since I was, I don't know, 13. But I guess that makes sense yeah. that they took on the the times, you know, and kind of commented on them. I guess, that, yeah, it makes sense that they were more adult than I thought that they were when... Yeah, they really, really were. There's a lot of adult references that you tend to forget that they were there. And this was clearly for adults. Now, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government actually commissioned Walt Disney Studios to make instructional cartoons for the war effort. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of them were like for training soldiers on what to do and what not to do. You know, don't get syphilis. Like that's a legit educational talking point. Yeah, the Mickey Mouse, don't get syphilis video is a classic. Hey, kids, don't put your dick in something you don't understand. Yeah, Yeah, so (laughs) exactly. This classic. Love that one. Yeah. But, but most of them were like, you know, don't tell secret information to Nazi spies and stuff like that. You know, lose lips, sink ships kind of shit. Other cartoons were produced to mock the Nazi regime and specifically Hitler. That Hitler, of course, was the big target yeah, sure. of these. Um, one was called Der Fuhrer's Face. This is one of Walt Disney's most popular propaganda cartoons. And it poked fun at Hitler's Germany by depicting Donald Duck, like, dreaming that he's a, a German war worker. But it shows, like, how shitty it is to be in Germany, like, that they're all poor. Like, he's spraying breakfast spray in his mouth because he's too poor to get food. Mm-hmm. It's, like, pure propaganda. Right, right, right. And it's just like, hey, things aren't as good as they say they are in Germany kind of sure. thing. So that one's sort of funny in a comedic yeah, sense. Sure. But the next one I'm going to talk about is not funny at all. Okay. Even though I'm talking about satire, I had to mention this one. This one is called Education for Death. Mm-hmm. And it is a, an animated film by Walt Disney. And it shows this young boy being indoctrinated into like the whole Nazi Party regime. It's really fucking creepy. Yeah, like that. it. Yeah, it's this What's is called Disney. education for death. Right. Yeah. I'm gonna put it on the site, but I just had to mention that because this is a Disney produced cartoon, mm-hmm. and it's kind of frightening. Yeah. And even now, what makes a Nazi? How does he get that way? Well, let's look into the process. To begin with, Nazi control over a German child starts as soon as it's born. 
Now let's see what happens to one of Hitler's children. Kindergarten, and little Hans learns the fairy tales of the new order. Marching and heiling, heiling and marching, Hans grows up. In him is planted no seed of laughter, hope, tolerance, or mercy. For now, his education is complete. His education for death. So I'm going to talk about another one, like, for instance, there's one called The Ductators from 1942. It's a satire depicting Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito as waterfowl on a farm. The Ductators. Okay, makes sense. And this is one I just have to mention because sometimes these can go too far. I have to mention this. Bugs Bunny nips the nips. I don't know what that it's means. It's like I'm a sorry. band cartoon. I had to bring this up because even though it doesn't deal with Nazi Germany, I had to bring this up because this is where Bugs Bunny encounters stereotype Japanese soldiers. Oh. Super, super racist. Uh-huh. So yeah, you can you can go too far. Mm-hmm. So the 40s were filled with cartoons making fun of the, the Nazis, the Nazi effort, and of course the Japanese in tasteless form. But the movies so much, like I said, didn't really satirize. There's plenty of classic movies that came out, like Hitchcock movies, Foreign Correspondent, Notorious. Those are Nazi spy films. Mm-hmm. They are classic films. They deal with the Nazi threat. Casablanca, all-around classic. Yep. Definitely had a Nazi theme to it. That came out in the 40s. So some great movies came out. Only one that I can find besides The, the Great Dictator was a satire, and that was called To Be or Not To Be from 1942. Yep. It's about the Nazi occupation in Poland, and an acting troupe becomes embroiled in a Polish soldier's efforts to track down a German spy. So there's a lot of slapsticking comedy stuff that takes place in that time period. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Music. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, again, not much from the 40s, and not much from the 50s either. So I'm going to skip, actually, I'm going to skip ahead because as we go forward there's a lot of satiristic movies and some funny shit but the 40s and 50s not so much a lot of drama i don't want to talk about those movies back then were kind of a uh, a vacation from what was actually going on so you went to the movies to get away from your horrible shitty war life you know so i think it's normal at that time to say that movies were escapism you know it wasn't all about like what was actually going on and again, at this time period, Nazis were perfect villains, too. So right. for spy thrillers, action movies, hands down, you can't go wrong with hating Nazis. They just, they were yeah, Hollywood's favorite villains. Yeah. So there's not a lot of satire to go around. That would change drastically in the 60s, though. And there's three major examples I'm going to talk about. The first one I'm going to talk about is Stanley Kubrick's movie, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb from 1964. Yeah, classic. Great dark comedy, still holds up. Wonderful performances all around. But I bring that up because there's a character in there that's played by Peter Sellers. He plays several characters, of course, but the one he plays is the namesake of the movie, Dr. Strangelove, who is a former Nazi scientist who serves as a scientific advisor in the war room to the president. And there's like a running slapsticky kind of joke where like his hand has a mind of its own and it constantly wants to see Heil and hold up and he says like mind fuhrer and stuff like that. He's a wacky, crazy character, but it's totally played for satire and humor. I mean, there's a lot of satire to go around in Dr. Strangelove. It's a great movie, but that one piece was definitely a direct satire against the Nazis and Hitler. The next example of the 60s was actually a television show called Hogan's Heroes. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this show? Not at all. All right, so when we were kids... Everything was in syndication. So you would see a bunch of shows from the 40s, 50s, 60s in syndication on normal TV. So this constantly kept coming around. And Hogan's Heroes is it's an American television show. It's a sitcom. And it takes place in a German prisoner of war camp. 
Hmm. And Hogan's heroes are a bunch of U.S. and British soldiers who were held captive, but they were actually running their anti-Nazi war effort out of this camp. You know, the camp's run by these bumbling officers, Nazi officers. Colonel Klink, who... That sounds familiar. Yeah, Colonel Wilhelm Klink, who's the camp leader, and of course is dumb as shit and a bumbling fool or whatever. And the the show ran from September 17, 1965 to April 4th, 1971. It was a huge hit. Wow. In the 60s, you know, nothing preceded it. no other show that would have paved the way for that so it's kind of groundbreaking yeah sure and you know it had a laugh track and everything else it was totally 60s comedy show yeah seems really bizarre take this man's name have him transferred to the russian front your honor general may i be of assistance herr general this man is to be court-martialed and shot but herr general i have not even greeted you yet that's why you're too slow will you never learn general himmelberger May I be of assistance? You may not! Take this man's name, Putsy. Transfer to the Russian front, sir, or court-martial to be shot? I don't know. Mix them up. (laughs) These days, it seems really, really bizarre. But what's even more interesting is the actor who played Colonel Klink, Werner Klimper, is a Jewish actor. Oh, really? Playing a Nazi colonel. Making me uncomfortable, kind of? I I don't know. I mean, you would think so. But overall, the show was nominated for 12 Emmys, and he won two. Hmm. The two Emmys it won was for his performance as Colonel Clank. Weird. Very weird. Yeah. The show starred a young Richard Dawson, if you remember him from the game show Family Feud. Oh, yeah. He was in that as a British officer. And the main actor, Hogan, was played by actor Bob Crane. And I don't know if you remember anything about him, but he was murdered in 1978. And his life and the murder was a subject of a 2002 film called Autofocus that starred Greg Kinnear. Oh, yeah. Vaguely. So it was a very weird, mysterious murder. I guess he was in a lot of weird shit or whatever. But yeah. And then my last example and probably my favorite on this list is the 1968 Mel Brooks movie, The Producers. Yeah, yeah. It's so simple. Step one. We find the worst plane in the world, a surefire flop. Step two, I raise a million bucks. There are a lot of little ladies in the world. Step three, you go back to work on the books. Only lists of backers, one for the government, one for us. Step four, we open on Broadway. Step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take a million bucks and we fly to Rio de Janeiro. Does their scheme work? Does this girl know? Do these boys care? See the producers and maybe you'll find out what it's all about. Starring Zero Mostel, co-starring Gene Wilder, and Dick Sean as LSD. I fucking love The Producers. Uh-huh. And you know I've never seen it, right? You've never seen The never Producers. Never seen the original. I never saw the remake. And I've never seen any of it. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so let me back it up so I can explain it to listeners. All right, so The Producers is a comedy. It's written and directed by Mel Brooks. It was his first movie. And it's about two Broadway producers, Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom, played by Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder, respectively. They realize there's a loophole in accounting where they can make more money if they produce a flop than if they produce a hit on Broadway. So they set out to find the worst possible fucking play they can find. And the one they found was called Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Ava in Birchensgaden. Birchensgaden. And it's 70s gay, not 2016 gay, right? Yeah, yeah, 60s gay as in happiness, not... 
gay. Got it. In the movie, it was actually a love letter to Hitler written by like deranged ex-Nazi friends Lipkin. Like he wrote it for real, mm-hmm. sort of like the room was written for real. Okay. All right. So they tried their heads and bets to find the worst person to play Hitler, and they find like this you know '60s beatnik loser guy to play Hitler, and he's totally awful. And they put on this play, and I mean it's a huge musical number, and of course it's got the great theme song of springtime. For Hitler, you haven't no. I I don't know where I was during this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I feel like just in prison missed the whole. Thing. Yeah, you, yeah, you missed it. It's it's incredible. Yeah, because they just went for it and just totally like put it on my list. Yeah, you need mm-hmm. to put it on your list. So of course there was a lot of controversy. I bet when this movie was being made. The movie was originally titled Springtime for Hitler, mm-hmm. but the executive producer Joseph E. Levine was like, no. We're not going to call it that. They didn't even want him to use Hitler. They were going to try to make it like springtime for Mussolini or something. Mm-hmm. They were like, yeah. we, we, Hitler's too extreme. We can't do it. And he's like, no, that's the satire part. You, you got to be able to make fun of Hitler. Sure. As it turned out, and as I mentioned Peter Sellers before, Peter Sellers was actually the one who got this movie out there. Oh, really? Like, no one wanted to release it. No one wanted to do anything with it. Peter Sellers, who had a lot of clout in the 60s, of course, he was very popular, very popular actor, loved it and pushed it, was able to use his huh. clout to get the producers out there. Hmm. But it was kind of a flop, mm-hmm. I think misunderstood when it came out. Yeah, yeah. Time has been kind to the producers. I'm going to talk more about it as we go through. You mentioned some of it, but I'll go back into that in a bit. But the producers came, came back, back around, around. Yeah. and we'll talk about that. I'm moving on to the 70s because that's all I got to say about the 60s, but some great Nazi satire. But the 70s ushered in a whole new thing, and I'm so excited about this. And this is Nazi exploitation. Mm-hmm. So, what is Nazi exploitation? Well, honestly, Nazi exploitation is generally women in prison films. In a nutshell. I mean, that's really what it is. Except that they take place in like a concentration camp or a Nazi death camp or even a Nazi brothel. Total exploitation. And it's naked women getting all types of terrible things happening to them in these Nazi camps. And of course, they have an added emphasis of gore, sadism, degradation. You mentioned the first women in prison film was Caged. Yeah, surprisingly, it came out in the 50s. It came out in the 50s. Some of the research I saw, the first film that really broke it out into its own subgenre was a movie called Love Camp 7, and that was from 1969. Mm-hmm. All right, this movie follows two female American officers who volunteer to enter a Nazi concentration camp undercover to gain information from and possibly rescue an inmate. The camp's female inmates serve as prostitutes for German officers and are subjected to bad treatment and torture and stuff. Right, right. I watched it. It's fucked up i mean it's terrible you can it's gonna be on the site like treated poorly was a real thing back then in the late 60s early 70s it was really the roughies yeah rough it was yeah the roughies fed into the women in prison films and yeah the nazi exploitation stuff fun fact the film was one of the original 72 video nasties in the uk oh really yeah so i guess just back then like guys just were like I love to see women smacked around and then there was yes. like, like ejaculation like Here's, I don't know if anybody's ever really talked about this or thought about this but are these movies like reactionary movies to appeal to men who were against the women's lib movement and found that yeah. like this degradation because they didn't like the real life I mean I don't think anybody's really pondered that but I wonder how close to reality that is well I'm glad you brought it up because I, I'm pretty sure my next episode after uh, Hicksploit is going to be Russ Meyer, the king of boobs. And he was 
really, I mean, his movie Lorna was the first Ruffy. And so I'm already starting to kind of go down that rabbit hole of trying to like figure out like what was the Ruffy about? Because he's also credited of like making all of these boob movies, but also that some of them were very feminist boob movies where the females were the lead character and were, you know, these like, you know, kind of sadistic like boob ladies that were like, fuck you, men. So more to come. I'm going to figure it out. More to come. More to come. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Nazi exploitation was born with Love Camp in 7. It also fed into what was probably the most popular of all the Nazi exploitation movies, which is Ilsa, She Wolf the SS, which came out in 1975. 1945. Somewhere inside Nazi Germany. This is Medical Camp 9. For these women, there is no hope, no escape. For them, there is only pain. And Ilsa, she-wolf of the SS. It's a Canadian Nazi exploitation war film, and it's about this woman who is, she's a commandant of a Nazi prison camp, and she conducts all these sadistic scientific experiments that are designed to demonstrate that women are more capable of enduring pain than men. Yeah. And that they should be allowed to fight in the German army. So that's kind of a weird feminist type of thing in a terrible way. Yeah. Ilsa is also portrayed as a buxom woman with voracious sexual appetite for men. So every night she chooses another one of her like male prisoners and then she rapes them. Rapes them, them. Yeah. yeah. She reverse rapes them. Because she's so hypersexual, and, and if you disappoint her sexually, she'll have you castrated. Yeah. And kill you. Ilsa has confused people for <laughs> many, many years. It's yeah. really just one of those things where you're like, is that wrong? No, maybe it's a, I'm just, it's, there's Ilsa's so many up. layers to this that I'm just not quite sure what I'm supposed to, to yeah. do here. Yeah. Yeah. Ilsa is very bewildering. I'm going to put the film on the site, so watch it at your leisure. But I think what the most bewildering thing about Ilsa is that it spawned several so sequels. Se- well, two sequels, right? Like four. Oh, wow. Or three. All right, so you've got... There was She-Wolf she of the SS. Then there was Ilsa, Harem Keeper of oh, the right. Oil Sheiks from right, 1976. Right. Ilsa, the Wicked Warden in 1977. Uh-huh. And Ilsa, the Tigress of Siberia, which Siberia, was also 1977. Right, right, right. So, yeah, this spawned a whole... I thought there was like, some Amazon series. version of it, too, but I guess I'm wrong. No, not that I'm aware of. Maybe. But yeah, this thing had a whole series so of these weird. movies. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, is Ilsa is actually patterned off of real-life murderous female Nazi camp personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, two in particular, Ilsa Koch, 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 and yeah, Irma, Koch, yeah. Koch, and Irma Gress. So she was actually modeled off of those two. They were sadistic. I don't know yeah. if they actually raped men and made them and cut off their dicks. I don't know. But yeah. they're both terrible people. So there you go. Not a good movie, but I can just imagine this was a grindhouse staple and people it watched was. the show. I actually, I've never seen any of the Ilsa movies, but in every exploitation book, and especially when you're talking about 42nd Street, Times Square staples, you know, of the 70s, they always talk about the Ilsa movies. And yeah. They played for years and years and years, you know? And I mean, these are straight up swastika wearing women. Like, yeah. it's something it's to be cra- seen. It's crazy pants. It yeah. is fucking nuts. Fun fact. So the Camp 9 set that they used on Ilsa mm-hmm. was the same set that Hogan's Heroes used. Really? Yeah, and the production team burned it down. They were going to get rid of the set, so Ilsa filmed it, and then like there was a big fight scene, and so they burned the camp down because they were going to burn it down anyway. Uh-huh. So they did it in the movie. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. it all ties together. Cool. So, of course, Ilsa spawned a lot of imitators. Films such as SS Experiment Camp, The Beast in Heat, SS Hell Camp, 
Gestapo's Last Orgy, and of course, my favorite, just because the title is a mouthful, Deported Women of the SS Special Section. And these all came from the 70s. Nazi exploitation yeah. shit. Yeah. Thanks. And you know, another thing that's kind of interesting is that there are actually two art films that are pretty much given credit as being Nazi exploitation films. Okay. The first is The Night Porter from 1974. Mm-hmm. The plot of this movie is after a chance meeting at a hotel in 1957, a Holocaust survivor and Nazi officer who tortured her resume their sadomasochistic relationship and there's like flashbacks to how he tortured her. It's a legit foreign film. Okay. And then, uh, of course, Sallow. Buh. Or 120 Days of Sodom. Yeah, that was a little more Mussolini, though. It wasn't is more it? Mussolini. Yeah. So, and, but it's still modeled after that Nazi exploitation yeah. and that people are getting degraded and you know gore and gets nasty and fucked up and yeah. and so it was and, a very multi-layered, very multi-complicated Market Assad thing. And of course, both of those are Criterion releases, so mm-hmm. they got legit releases on Criterion. So there you go, yeah. some Nazi exploitation influenced films. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to move on to another piece of the 70s before we leave the 70s because I had to talk about this movie because I grew up watching this movie, and it's a kid's movie, a Walt Disney movie that had a big Nazi subplot, and that is Bed Knobs and Broomsticks from 1971. No. Here she comes in the most enchanting role of her career, the incomparable Angela Lansbury as Miss Eglantine Price, the apprentice witch who's taking a correspondence course in witchcraft, and funny man David Tomlinson as the lovable London con man. In Walt Disney Productions' super magical motion picture, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Together, they lead three homeless cockney waifs through a world of magic, more fantastic than anything you've ever seen before. Maybe she's not a wicked witch. Of course I'm not. You see, the work I'm doing is so important to the war effort. Bedknobs and Broomsticks was a Nazi movie? Well, let me explain. Okay, okay. so it stars Angela Lansbury, and she's a witch. She's yeah, like an apprentice witch. Okay, it's yeah. a classic. I, we, it used to come on Sunday nights, like every Sunday yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, but she's this apprentice witch, and she lives in Britain, and it's right around the time of Blitzkrieg during World War II. What happens is there's a big climatic battle scene where the Nazis are invading, or they're trying to sneak into Britain, and she uses magic to fight the Nazis. Really? Yeah, and there's a scene I'm going to put on the site, because it, I remember the scene as a kid, and I loved it, and it's, it's hokey shit it's very slapsticky but the effects were fairly good for the time she brings to life all this armor like oh, medieval armor this. with yeah. swords and she uses them to fight the nazis and of course it's not gory at all right obviously, of course, but um, yeah. it's more hokey because it's a disney movie but the Lansbury. premise is the sh- like if somebody did a gritty reboot of red knobs and broomsticks where knights of armor magical armor were killing nazis I'm I'm there. I'm yeah. fucking there. Okay. But I loved this movie as a kid. But yeah, so Angela Lansbury is a witch fighting Nazis with suits of armor. I wonder how they sold that. I wonder how they were like, here here's the premise. Right. Angela Lansbury, witch, Nazis, kids movie. It's sold. Yeah. Give me the budget. It's on Walt Disney. Wow. Yeah. I love that movie. I can't believe you don't remember that part of it. I mean, Bedknobs and Broomsticks was Boopsticks. one of those. I love Boopsticks. Yeah. <laughs> So there was this movie called Ilsa, She-Wolf of the Boobsticks. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. No, I mean, it was one of those movies that I watched as a kid, you know, so I probably didn't. All I was just like, is like, ha ha ha, Angela Lansbury is British and like, you know, cartoon. It was a mix of cartoon and real life, right? And there were some cartoon pieces in there, but it wasn't, I don't think it was as prominent. There was animation. I thought it was, I thought it was like, I thought that when Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out, they were like, oh, the precursor to this was Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interaction with animation in there, but okay. the scene I'm talking about the big scene and the one i really remember was that 
and that's the scene I'll put on the site with fighting the, the Nazis. Yeah. So that's pretty much all I have to say about the 70s. The 80s, I don't really have shit to say about the 80s because okay. the 80s were pretty much absorbed with Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking of Nazis in the 80s, you're thinking of Indiana Jones fighting the Nazis. I mean, there's plenty of other movies that came out, but I feel like that movie pretty much monopolized at least in my imagination, but I was the perfect age for that movie of Indiana Jones fighting Nazis and Nazis' faces melting off. Right, right. Of course, there's some comedy and stuff in there. Not a lot of satire, though. They were cartoonishly yeah, like bad. Sophie's Choice and stuff. Yeah, Sophie's Choice was, kind of was not yeah. really a really yeah. rousing comedy. Yeah, yeah. So th- there wasn't a lot to make fun of of the the Nazis that I can remember much in the '80s. So I'm going to skip to the '90s because okay. I think there really isn't much in the way of satire in the '80s for the Nazis. But one thing that really stood out when we get to the '90s is a British sitcom called. Heil honey, I'm home. Heil honey. Heil honey. Heil honey. Heil honey. Hello, I'm home. And it was written by a guy named Jeff Atkinson. It was produced in 1990, and it was canceled after one episode. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah, and it, it centers on a fictionalized version of Adolf Hitler and Ava Braun. And they live next door to this Jewish couple, the Goldensteins. And the show spoofs elements of mid-20th century American sitcoms. And, of course, it's driven by Hitler's inability to get along with his neighbors. Believe it or not, Big Shock, it caused a lot of controversy and was aired. No, it was really? canceled after yeah. one episode. And I'm going to have you watch a little bit of it, so you got to see this to believe it. So. Okay. Hi, honey, I'm home. What did I do now? Oh, tonight you were making schnitzel. What a joke. You must be real mad at me, honey. I'm a very, very bad Hitler. (laughs) Come here, baby. Don't touch me. You've been late for your dinner every night this week. Ava, babe, please. I'm the Fuhrer. (laughs) I'm a busy man. I can't just walk off the job at five o'clock. On Monday, you had to meet with Goebbels. On Tuesday, Von Ribbentrop. On Wednesday, Klaus Katzenjammer. Who's Klaus Katzenjammer? He's my tailor. You should see the tucks, honey. You see, everyone's more important than Ava. Well, let me tell you something, Mr. Schickelgruber. You may be big stuff in Germany, but I knew you and you were just a house painter. Boy, this is going to be some night. Okay, so I just showed Slate a snippet of Heil Honey, I'm Home. And so it takes on kind of the tropes of like the honeymooners right. and yeah. I Love Lucy, you know, type thing. It's uh, it's very self-aware, I will say yeah. that. It seems like one of those things that plays well as like a cutaway during Family Guy and then you're back out and then we never have to go there again. Right. You know, it's one of those, it's, it's one joke. So I thought I, it was like a skit. It plays like it's a skit from like Saturday Night Live or Mad TV or something. Right. That's not. But it's, it's twenty-two own, minutes long and was designed to be a TV show. It's. It, I can see how the joke would have been funny for maybe one to two minutes. Right. Yeah. And we saw forty seconds, and you. I wanted, was like, I don't. I'm I not don't want to watch this, this anymore. Yeah. yeah. I. I can't believe this thing was. Well, it's even only produced. one joke. The their joke is is that it's like it's Hitler, but in the honeymooners scenario, right. and yeah. it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of a funny joke. It's one joke. Even the yeah. theme song is the yeah. one joke. But I couldn't believe it. It was like, holy shit. Yeah, wow. Definitely something. So that's it for the 90s, to be honest. The only thing that really stood out in the 90s as far as fucking with Hitler was South Park. You know, they made a lot of Hitler jokes. Mm-hmm. Of course, they had... Hartman played Hitler in something, didn't he? he? Like, he was Hitler for Halloween. Oh, that's and right, yeah. yeah, it was 
fucked up. But that's really the only major funny stuff that made fun of Hitler. They still didn't really make fun of him as much. There just wasn't any notable satire. That changed in the new millennium, though, and changes right away. You mentioned this and we talked about it. The producers in 2001 became a major Broadway play. Yep. Uh, it starred Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in the roles that were played by you know Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder in the movie. And it won a record-breaking 20 Tony Awards. Jesus. It played for 2,502 performances. So it was hugely successful. Oh God, Very hard yeah. to get in. Everybody wanted to see it. And it made a lot of money. They made a movie of the actual play starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in 2005, and it didn't do very well. I think it made money, but it was kind of like... I think it made people just want to go see the play instead, Mm because it was pretty much the filmed play. Right. I'd rather have seen it live than see the movie. One thing I wanted to discuss since we're on the producers is that, again, when that came out, it wasn't that much of a success, the actual movie. Right. And Hogan's Heroes was one of the biggest comedies of that time period Mm -hmm. and was hugely successful and had huge ratings. But it's weird how time sort of vindicated the producers and made it like a beloved Broadway musical that was wonderful. And time has come around to make producers a classic. Whereas these days, Hogan's Heroes is actually frowned upon and looked as bad taste. Yeah, I I never hear about Hogan's Heroes. Like, no, especially for a show that ran for what eight seasons. Like, and you never hear about that no, show. No, you don't yeah. hear about it. It might have shown up on like Nick at Night or one of those. You know, I don't things, think it did. But like, it, I don't remember not. it. Yeah, and people criticize it now because it trivializes the suffering of real POWs and camps. Yeah. So TV Guide in 2002 named Hogan's Heroes the fifth worst TV show of all time in an article titled "TV Guide's 50 Worst TV Shows Ever." So it's weird how time sort of it's the fifth worst. So yeah, so, do you know what the first four were? I have were? no idea. Right, what are pull they? Pull it up. Okay. All right. Number five, Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Number four, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Okay. Oof, that sounds terrible. That does sound terrible. Number three, XFL. I don't know. 2001 TV series. Number two is My Mother the Car. I remember that, actually. <laughs> I don't, but that sounds That was during awful. the whole, like, Herbie... Wasn't Herbie, like, a 1960s yeah, movie? Yeah, it was a big about, thing, like, yeah. A, yeah, it was yeah. something like that. Huh. And the number one show... What? Is Jerry Springer. Really? Yeah, the worst the show? worst TV show in the wow. history is Jerry Springer. I mean, I guess that makes sense. That's the it's worst trash. of society. Yeah, like, nothing but trash. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. All, All right, right, so there you go. Hogan's Heroes, fifth worst show on TV. Okay. So, yep, history is definitely not kind to that. Nope. So moving on into the 2000s, again, there is some good parody that comes up and some funny stuff. I'm going to talk about Inglourious Bastards really fast. Sure, sure. Great movie. I love this movie, movie. Tarantino movie. It had Christoph Waltz played a a wonderful character and got an Oscar for it. Best supporting actor, yeah. But I say the movie's satire because there's a number of Tarantino-isms in there. Number one, anachronistic music, of course, and a lot of dark humor. But also, he pretty much changed the ending of World War II in that movie. Yeah. And also made Hitler sort of a screeching, like, little bitch mm-hmm. and of course he got his face shot off yeah from, uh, I'm okay so with that yeah i'm fine with that i'm too. fine and if you change history to i know up a it's movie great theater. yeah with you know, in it great tarantino by nature does a lot of exploitation type of gimmicks he's a you know an exploitation filmmaker with a big budget yeah sure i would say there's a lot of satire in yeah, that there's film. parody in there definitely so definitely some other stuff i want to talk about dead snow from 2009 a nazi mm-hmm. zombie movie a lot of gore a lot of fun in that one but I remember the uh vhs cover wasn't it like a head 
half of a head and a Nazi hat on the snow. Yeah. Yeah. Another great piece of Nazi satire was a show called Danger 5 from 2012. It's an Australian show. Okay. It's on Netflix. It's great. It basically takes a 1960s view of the war. So it's filmed just like a shitty 1960s adventure show. Okay. But it's bizarre as fuck. It's really weird. But of course, every episode, they're trying to kill Hitler because there's always the Nazis are trying to do some weird 60s-esque sci-fi type of thing to rule the world. And of course, they fight them and it's just, it's bizarre. All right, everybody. At 0800 hours this morning, the Nazis stole the Eiffel Tower. We believe this could be the very beginning of the largest piece of Nazi propaganda ever executed by Hitler's propaganda wizard, Joseph Goebbels. It's safe to assume Goebbels has similar plans for other monuments, and I think we can all agree a world without monuments is not worth living in. Mm. Your mission? Mm. Find out what the hell the Nazis want with the tower, where they're taking it, and get it back. And of course, as always, kill Hitler. And season two, there's only two seasons. Season two becomes an 80s parody where like Hitler becomes Johnny Hitler, the coolest guy in school. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, Didn't see that coming. It's, it's bizarre shit, but it's definitely a great parody. This Christmas, Adolf Hitler <laughs> is back. All he wants is a date with world domination. But there's five things he didn't count on. Hi, Hitler. Danger five things. Freeze, Hitler! It can't be. Hitler's dead. And the last major thing I want to talk about in this whole thing is uh, the movie Downfall from 2004. The reason I bring this up is the movie Downfall is about the last days of Hitler's reign, and it was a fairly well-received movie. Oh, I think I know where you're going with this. And it was critically acclaimed, it was great, but something happened with that where there's a scene in that movie where Hitler's in his bunker and he's totally losing his shit. In German. In German. Right. At his, you know, the people in his command because he's losing the war and he's like just berating everything and losing his shit. So that clip was taken and given different subtitles. So it's become a meme right, yeah. for everything under the sun. So it's been used for everything from online gaming, TV, music, sports, any culturally relevant thing. Like you could probably find one now with the election stuff going on with him berating, you know, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton with just these different subtitles underneath it. It's, right. it's been, do you remember this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. I should note that we're, what, three days before the election and right. we're recording this and the election's already happened. So you yeah. We don't know who the president is going to be right now. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I do. It's basically a scene of an actor playing a Hitler who's kind of calm at first, then he flies off the chain. But since it's in German, what people have been doing is they've been just making their own subtitles to it. So it's funny. I never knew where that came from because Downfall like was not a thing. Like I don't no. remember that movie at all. So. It wasn't a big movie. It was a smaller movie, but it was critically acclaimed. Uh-huh. But it, it didn't distinguish itself in any major way. That clip just found new life yeah. with Paris. People so. just found it. It's really easy to just make subtitles over top of a movie scene right. and make and it see whatever Hitler you loses want shit over something. something. Yeah, yeah. So fun with Nazis. Yeah. Huh. So to wrap this whole thing up, because that's kind of where I end this whole thing. I noticed a trend when I was doing this and looking at the whole satire piece of this, which is you could get away with it and then not so much and then can sure, like yeah. in the 30s when the Warner Brothers cartoons started making fun of the Nazi regime and, and Hitler and those um, you know the tide had turned instead of American ambivalence people were like yeah fuck that guy and it worked and we were able to get by the Hayes Code I think the years following when we found out just how bad the Nazi regime was right and the terrible shit that they did and the suffering and everything from beyond that, it became kind of less funny, but there right. was still means to bring up humor 
And the argument was there where you take power away from them when you make fun of them. Sure, sure. And so you would see someone like Mel Brooks or even something like Hogan's Heroes, which really, I mean, regardless of how it stands in time now, really pushed the envelope for the 60s. Right. I mean, who would the fuck would have had a, a popular TV show? Crazy, yeah. That was a POW camp of all places. Right. So that's pretty impressive. And then fits and starts with what's popular. 70s action films were the big thing with Nazis. So you had things like Guns of Navarone. You had uh, Where Eagles Dare. These were like action adventure with Nazi bad guys. Like I said, 80s was Indiana Jones, but you still had these little bits and pieces of being able to make fun of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now, especially in this millennium, when everything's a meme and you can kind of make fun of everything, with that much distance, I feel like it's kind of in bad taste in some aspects when you say, you're as bad as Hitler, where people insult each other, saying you're the Hitler of this, the Hitler of that. But you can totally make fun of Hitler now, and it's like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What's your opinion on that? I, I kind of stay away from it. It's one of those things where I, ju- I just have no knowledge of the subject whatsoever. I'm I didn't not Jewish. Either. I grew up in a very, you know, right. I just, I didn't even know Hitler was a thing until I was probably 17. I just stay away from it, you know, because I'm like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know enough to make a joke, basically. Sure. And it was a horrible, horrible thing. It so, was a horrible, yeah. horrible thing. But I respect and appreciate that someone can find dark humor and poking fun at that. Yeah, of course. I mean, we should be able to lighten the mood of anything by making fun of it. Right. It's that's just that's one of our rights, you know. Right. And as Mel Brooks, who has made fun of Hitler for decades, you know, as a Jewish American, it's his right to make fun of Hitler. Of and it's it's a good thing to be able to find humor in such a dark and terrible thing. And some of the shit is fucking funny. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And anyway, that's my episode on fun with Nazis. What do you think? I thought it was great. The only thing that I was thinking of uh, just now, I don't know anything about this topic, so I, you can't be like, what did I miss? I don't know. I have right. no clue. So Annie Hall, which is obviously a, probably considered to be the best comedy of all time, yeah. and and Woody Allen, Jewish American, he makes a joke in there, which makes me laugh every single time. Uh, Diane Keaton has already broken up with Woody Allen, but they're friends again, you know? Sure. And she was saying, oh, I'm living this LA lifestyle now, and my new boyfriend, he's won a lot of awards, and Woody Allen, his style which I can't imitate, was like, oh, awards, everyone's won awards, you know, anyone can win an award, uh, best best Nazi dictator, Adolf Hitler, anyone can win an award, you know, whatever, and I was just like, <laughs> every single wow. time I laugh at that, so, you know, yeah. it's, it's Woody Allen, he's like, you know, he's still cracking these jokes, like, yeah. that's the only thing I could think of that was a Nazi joke uh, that I'd like to be recorded uh, as saying, so. Yeah, well, you did. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> Alright, we always like to hear from the, the listeners for yeah, things that we might have missed, if you so, got something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I always love, love to hear, to hear more stuff. So, anyway, that's the episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources, as well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. Try this again. Okay. Hold on. A lot of the movies back then, movies weren't... Stop shaking your glass. Sorry, there's ice in it.